Welcome to the Post Talk Live podcast, where we host live salon gatherings for curious people around the world. Hosted by me, Susan McTavish-Best. Hi, this is Post Talk's producer, Rob Perra. Today's episode is part of a three-part series focused on human flourishing. Hosted by Susan McTavish-Best and Andrew Sarazen, president of Templeton World Charity Foundation. Enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I am co-hosting today. This is our third salon on the broad topic of human flourishing, which uh, the Templeton World Charity Foundation is focusing on over the next five years. And Andrew is the president of TWCF. Uh, So I'm looking forward to uh, hosting this conversation with you, Andrew. You are in warmer climes than I am. I am in New York and I woke up to 18 degrees Fahrenheit not much heating in my apartment this morning. Hmm. Um, James, thank you so much for joining us. Are you in Cambridge? I am in Cambridge indeed. Um, It's not quite 18 degrees, but it's grim and dark and we're all locked inside anyway. So Uh, that's right. Yeah. So uh, James's most recent book, I'm going to hold it up. Hopefully this will work. Oh, that's terrible lighting. Work, a history of how we spend our time. So I uh, I first fell into this, I think it must have been around in August or September. You uh, had an excerpt in the in the FT and then, and then spoke at a conference. And um, I think all of us have been looking at how we work and where we work uh, a little bit differently this year uh, as a result of COVID. But I think you finished this book the prior November, um, but uh, you did use the word pandemic towards the end of it, uh, which I noticed. But I, I always like to start with a, a small um, quote from the book. So I'm going to just read it from the book because that's easier. Okay. Um, so you say, uh, you finish up the last paragraph about the book and, and why you wrote it. The principal purpose, however, has been to loosen the claw-like grasp that scarcity economics has held over our working lives and to diminish our corresponding and unsustainable preoccupation with economic growth. For by recognizing that many of the core assumptions that underwrite our economic institutions are an artifact of the agricultural revolution, amplified by our migration into cities, frees us to imagine a whole range of new, more sustainable possible futures for ourselves and rise to the challenge of harnessing our restless energy, purposefulness and creativity to shaping our destiny. And boom, all of a sudden then we have a pandemic which somewhat really does it for us. Um, so <laughs> the, book, the book looks at an evolution of work over, over 3000 years so that we can understand the past which can then help us move towards the future but i thought one uh perhaps one way to start would be for you to give us what your definition of work is okay well i'm gonna have to do something else just before then because you you held up you held up the uk edition of the book my us US publishers you see have a very different subtitle what's very different oh okay very different cover so i i I gotta say wow it's quite depressing that one and the subtitle is called a deep history from the stone age to the age of robots they felt ah they felt for some reason america wouldn't wouldn't go for the bruegel picture and uh and uh yeah, I, I remember. I remember when Martin Rees published his book in the UK, which was our final century, and then in the American edition was Black. our final hour. 
And <laughs> it was because Americans don't have the attention span. It's an attention span issue, exactly. <laughs> to think about it. Like a century, what are you talking about? Like, this is an hour. You got an hour. That's, no. uh, that's right. Anyway, so now, now I've done that bit of business. The next bit of business is you, you asked me to say how I define work. Well, partially I don't. Half of the idea of writing the book was to really make us rethink a little bit what work is. We tend to so straightforwardly conflate work with our jobs, you know, what we get paid to do. We have intuitively a much bigger understanding of what work is because of course we use the word in a million different contexts we used to we talk about we work at our relationships we work at our family lives we work i used to be able to when i could leave the house i used to work at my tennis and um, now i just sit and look out the window rather miserably and um, but the point is we use work in all sorts of strange and unusual contexts um, that don't immediately relate to what we do for a living. The other thing that is really interesting about work is that we also tend to do, and this is something that's very clear, I spend most of my life working with hunter-gatherers, um, and the area I work, people come, and, people come from Europe and America, and what do they do? They come to hunt. They come to hunt elephants, and they pay an awful lot of money to do it, and it leaves the um, Junwasi, the butchman, the Kalahari hunter-gatherers I work with, absolutely bewildered. Um, but they appreciate that they come and spend the money. But what to them is work is what these people come and do as recreation. So often the boundary between work and recreation is whether we are paying to do something these days or whether we're being paid to do it. So, for example, if lots of people do gardening for recreation, I like to cook for recreation. Lots of people do fishing for recreation, but all of those are also professions. So what I wanted to do was take that idea of work back down and break it down to really what it fundamentally is. And that's why the deep historical approach is important. But work really is ultimately, it's about getting energy and expending that energy, doing something purposeful, doing something with an aim or an ambition. And that's the closest thing we can get to a universal definition of work. One that um, hunter-gatherers in the Kalahari will agree on, as well as pinstripe derivative traders in New York. Which is, uh, in fact, actually the physics definition of work with, you know, the, the, the expense of energy towards some, you know, action over, uh, over some distance. So uh, I think the physicists in the audience will appreciate your work. Absolutely. I mean, and I do actually talk a lot about the physics of it. And I mean, this is something very, you know, there's, there's a fine line between physics and biology. And when you look at evolutionary history and the relationship between work and what you do, what is the work that hunter-gatherers do or that they classify as work? The work that they do is securing the energy they need in order to do what all organisms do, which is grow, reproduce, and order their bits and pieces into organs and bodies. It's a very fundamental thing. So work is actually part of the fundamental compact between life and energy and the universe. It's something very profound in that sense. I wonder whether there's another physical uh, constant that, or you know, variable that we um, sometimes think about work uh, in relation to, and that is time. And uh, it seems like in the modern sense, work uh, and jobs really, you know, are deeply connected to the use of time. And um, and I, I, so I wonder what how, how you see that playing out, and uh, whether your your uh, 
your book uh, speaks to that. It's uh, surprisingly enough a major theme in the book, the concept of time. And part of it is, is that's really, you know, when I'm looking at the difference and, you know, what the focal point of the book is, is why is it that hunter-gatherers work so much less than we do? Why did our ancestors who were supposed to endure this horrific, endless struggle against for survival actually end up getting away with working 15 hours a week and having a lot more leisure time than we do? And what was it that motivated them? And part of it is to do with time. And time, hunter-gatherers typically focused all their work effort on meeting their immediate needs, what they needed for that day. They didn't bother storing surpluses. They didn't bother getting more than they could possibly use at that moment. And that was because they had this extraordinary confidence in the providence of their environment and in their skills of being able to extract a living from it. But effectively, everything they did was very present-focused, and that really affected everything from their perception of time to the way they engaged with the world around them. People just didn't think. So the Zhenwasi, for example, I lived and worked with, when it came to time, they had words for tomorrow, the next day, and sort of in the future, and they had words for yesterday, the day before yesterday, and long ago. And it simply reflected, not that they couldn't accommodate concepts of time, they just didn't care a great deal. So if I'd be talking with a group of old people, you know, clearly wizened and wrinkled and, you know, remembered the days when they were isolated hunter-gatherers, and I'd ask them who was born first, they'd be like, well, well I don't know, we don't really care. So the transition to agriculture actually was suddenly with farming, everything's to do with future-oriented work. So when you farm, instead of, you know, hunter-gatherer harvests what they need to eat that day, as a farmer, everything involves a delayed return almost. So you plant your seeds in the spring in the hope that once you work that field and invest your labor into it over the course of a year, that by autumn you'll have a harvest, you'll then process, and maybe if it's wheat that you're dealing with, you'll then, after you've processed it, maybe by Christmas you'll have some bread, future-focused. And that changed everything. So, I mean, our economies now are all very much what we call delayed return economies in anthropology, which is everything we do is focused on some future point, whether we're working for our pensions, whether we're getting educated for a degree or school leaving certificates, everything's future focused. And this speaks to this kind of constant aspirationalness of really modern life. And I think a great deal of the dissatisfaction that comes in modern life when we talk about human flourishing, I think a great deal of flourishing is interrupted by the fact that we are continuously plagued by unfulfilled future aspirations. We're continuously working for the grass to be greener, you know, to get to the other side with the mm. grass to be greener. I'm not going to use my Aunt Hetty's quote about that. Mm. So the, the Bushmen were not worrying about their retirement fund or hoarding toilet paper <laughs> no they, they 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 weren't they weren't they definitely weren't hoarding toilet paper they're more practical <laughs> methods of dealing with that right right, right um so when did the 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 notion of the 40 hour work week or 35 hour or in silicon valley the 100 hour work week when when did that really um come about was that during the agricultural revolution or after that. Um, I suppose people in agri, you know, if you think of early agricultural farmers, I mean, they went through, you know, they tied their lives into this difficult calendar and they also tied their lives into this world where scarcity was a big thing because being a farmer, you exposed yourself to all sorts of extraordinary risks. They didn't really think in terms of, you know, they weren't working against the clock. 
in a sense. What they were doing was they had to do whatever jobs need to be done. So you talk to any farmer today and, you know, my partner, my partner's parents and brother run a farm, a sheep farm in Wales. And the work just happens to be there. It is work that just has to be done. There's nothing on the clock. So when it comes to harvest time, it's, you know, people are working at night and doing the threshing. When it's lambing season, you do the work with the lambing. You're tied to a calendar. It's partially dictated by nature. So work only became, we only began to think of work in terms of hours when labor started being done on behalf of other people in a sense. And that was much more recent thing. So that comes with the idea of a job. And that really comes with the industrial revolution. And with the early industrial revolution, as we all know from, you know, all of the twist like tales, people worked you know, up to the match ladies in, you know, in Brian's and May match factory in, in the UK worked 74 hour weeks. Mm. Um, and that really only began to diminish come the 1920s and the beginning of the machine age and the whole efficiency movement where basically Henry Ford and others started embracing this idea that actually if people are doing really terribly boring jobs, let's pay them more and make their jobs easier and give them fewer hours. But you know, recognize that, you know, you know, he, he, the whole idea was that people went to work for the rewards, not for the pleasure or the joy or the fulfillment of working. And that was the great loss of the industrial age was long hours, but really tedious work. Mm. And the more tedious work you do, the more that you then need to, you know, get a massage and look after yourself. Well, and, you <laughs> sort know, of a horrible circle. <laughs> Well, this is, this is, you know, so a quote from the Bushmen when they talked about the elephant hunters who came, and in particular, it was a couple of an Austrian dentists of very strange political views, I have to say. But, you know, we we're discussing over the fire why they were hunting, and the Jean-Claude speculated, Tui, a hunter, great, you know, an old guy who hunts for the, you know, using traditional bow and arrow and all the rest. And, and he looked at me and he said, you know, their jobs must be really boring if they come over to do this. <laughs> and it, 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 was, it, was, it was a never a true word was spoken, I think. You know, so one of the concepts I think that gets bound up in, uh, in, in work, um, you know, as you move towards, towards the agricultural and industrial revolution is, is concepts of like the dignity of work and the on, an honor associated with that um, sort of as a social structure, which permits um, and, and, and scaffolds the commitment to work long hours and delayed gratification and so forth. Um, you know, that those concepts uh, of the dignity of work have, have somewhat of a checkered past. Um, but I would wonder what's your, you know, are you a fan of those or do you, do you um, skeptic or, um, you know, well, I, I'm fairly ambivalent in that I think the idea of dignity in work is, again, it's a byproduct of our transition to agriculture where labor became a virtue and idleness became a vice, you know, and this didn't happen in the hunter-gatherer world. But when people transitioned to agriculture, there really did become a clear correspondence between how much work you did and whether you survived, whether you, you know, and your future prospects really so there was this organic correspondence and that's where the dignity idea comes in because dignity is of course often linked in with 
you know, ideas of virtue. But there is a more fundamental question. This is where the evolutionary history is really interesting. We are design. We are evolution. Natural selection has turned us into workers. We are purposeful creatures. And when we're denied purpose, when we're denied fulfillment, we are lost. We're also uniquely skillful creatures. This is in evolutionary terms, our neuroplasticity, um, whole sequence of features from our dexterous hands. We are you know, if, if we have one evolutionary gift, it is we are skilled at acquiring skills, whereas animals like lions are skilled at being hunters and they're stuck within a relatively narrow genetic confine as to how they can exercise their skills. We are these astonishingly versatile creatures and we evolved natural selection, select consistently in favor of people who found pleasure. So we enjoy all qualities that evolutionary biologists often struggle to articulate as well as poets, but things such as perseverance, um, things such as ambition, things such as desire. But we work and, you know, you go through our evolutionary history and there are, you know, wonderful things like ancient, a 700,000 year old Aculean hand axe carved from banded ironstone. And it is so obvious that this is not a practical implement. It's called the Katupan Handa. This is a thing that has been made with love, with care, with desire. Somebody has got real joy out of that work. And that is, I think, where, you know, what we're really missing in so much of what we do is really this fundamental, profound pleasure we get in mastering and learning skills and executing them and feeling the results of those. Mm. I suppose we all we all need a sense of purpose to wake up in the morning, but uh, many people are uh, well. They're not this year, but going off to the office and staring in front of a screen that they they of course then no have no time to do those find those hobbies and find a purpose that they enjoy. You know. Yes. Well, yes. this is you know there's some people who find and again there are many people actually who find who manage to get the job and purpose to meld together and they have these wonderful satisfying jobs which employ purpose skill engagement employs their emotions their bodies and their minds but then there are many 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 others we might all fall into that category actually yeah, yeah you might this is no, but it, it's, it's interesting it's a question of privilege now whether you can actually do a job that you want to do that's what right. you know, john can kenneth galbraith talks about from the 1960s and he talked about the, the new class people who are able to choose the work they loved rather than try and persuade themselves to love the work they found mm. we have a question here that i'm going to throw out right right now from tony lacobaro what about the conflation of work and identity who can I blame for that? <laughs> Tony comes to many of our New York salons. <laughs> well, they, um, well I, I can think of loads of people to blame for that. Um, but you know, if, if you're going to apportion the very first blame, you should apportion really the first agricultural societies that were productive enough to sustain cities because this conflation of work and identity is a rural, I beg your pardon, an urban phenomenon. You know, if you think about it in countryside, and still actually in the countryside I work in in Namibia, when you meet somebody and you meet people all the time wandering through the bush, the first question you ask is where are you from? Or who is your father? What, what is your family lineage? In a city, you go and meet somebody. The first thing you ask is who do you work for and what work do you do? And with that, you've got a whole lot of information that comes out of it. Now, when people surged into cities, you know, 
for all, really up until the Industrial Revolution, 80% of people worked in the countryside producing the energy in the form of food that we needed to live and survive and thrive. Um, and 20% of the people who worked in cities, a very small proportion, who had jobs, um, spent that energy. They took in the surpluses from the countryside and they did different kinds of jobs. And within the cities, people effectively lost that kind of geographical cohesiveness that they had. And because work makes who we are, work fundamentally rewires us. If you're a potter and you start using your hands to create the shapes, it's, there's an organic relationship there, which is deeply embedded in our bodily memory. It's deeply embedded in our the way we organize our our minds, you know, the neuroplasticity is around. So we tend naturally to have a great deal in common with people who do similar trades to us. We also tend naturally to have a great deal in common with people who have had a similar upbringing to us. So things like literacy shape the way we think and engage with the world around us. And that's, of course, schoolwork that we've done. So part of the reason that we, you know, conflate work and identity is a function of, you know, the great migration into cities and then subsequently within cities, um, the fact that people began to identify with their work and their workplaces. And, you know, certainly in terms of the last century, if we think about it, the office effectively became the surrogate village. That's where people found, you know, that people are socialized with. It's where people often found their spouses. Um, and it's where people, of course, spent most of their time. Um, so that's, that's, that, that, that's who to blame. You just blame, blame, blame fate and failing that. I can give you some politicians' names, but I'll keep my mouth shut. <laughs> Sounds like uh, Hammurabi is probably the... <laughs> yes. Uh, we, can, we can start with, with that. Um, I did want to ask about... Um, the, uh, you know, sort of this tension between that you describe, you know, on the one hand, specialization uh, and future orientation, mitigation of risks as, uh, you know, future risks as being part of the way that we've constructed working lives. Um, but that's, you know, that's produced a lot, right? That's, that's, uh, that's allowed for much greater scale of human society, much greater, um, life expectancy uh, as a whole. And so how do you, how, how do you think about that tension between um, some of the, the challenges associated with these post agricultural revolution uh, approaches to work and the deliverances of this, of, of progress? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I have to confess as with, 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 with all things, I think I'm ambivalently about them and partially because, you know, I, I recognize that every great benefit we have has had some kind of trade-off as well. Um, you know, I, I ask myself in terms of things such as, you know, fundamental levels of happiness. What is the, what is the extent of the difference um, between us and, again, our hunter-gatherer ancestors? And I also ask myself about the construction of happiness, how we, how we engage with that kind of thing. But at the same time, I'm also very much a product of my era. I'm a product of science. I'm a product of learning. It's my passion. It's what I engage with. And so my hopefulness is really about how do we now take lessons from the past and how our various ancestors have engaged with questions around work, questions around ambition, and in particular productivity, now that we're in this super abundant era. How do we apply those lessons to making sure that we 
make the absolute most of this extraordinary prosperity that we have won ourselves and these very long lifespans that we've won ourselves to enjoy that prosperity. And again, this goes back to this fundamental question that, you know, was asked by John Maynard Keynes in the 1930 when he predicted we'd only be working 15 hours a week by now. And John Kenneth Galbraith when he wrote The Affluent Society in 1960. How do we avoid wasting the affluence we have? Because, you know, we mentioned earlier, work ultimately is an energy equation and there's an absolute correspondent you know there's a very clear reason why we can measure effectively economic economic output in terms of climate emissions because climate emissions are a rough proxy for energy usage and energy usage is energy used for work and there's a problem there's a relationship between the amount of energy that we do and the amount of energy work we do by proxy whether it's you know the things powering and making our computers or the machinery that we use or and so on and of course certain environmental implications and you know at the moment we're at risk and i think it's a very profound question and i think our working lives are interlinked with this we have a profound risk of cannibalizing the very prosperity that our hard work and ingenuity has won us and that's really where i want to take with this book is to ask ourselves how can we reorganize and rethink the way we engage with the world around us to make use of the prosperity we've won without cannibalizing everything and it's very hard to avoid that conclusion that we're we'll probably end up doing pretty badly for ourselves if we don't fix things are, are there a, 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 like say two or three things that you think uh ceos and bosses should be considering as we come out of the the pandemic i mean we've been sort of shocked into now looking at work differently uh andrew has a number of employees um any any tips on what they should be thinking about now um, not I mean, look, in, in some ways, and I get the sense that, you know, certainly that there are bigger, there is a greater sense, you know, we've been through this extraordinary transition over the last year, and, and it's an experience where people have felt a little bit more mortal, and a little bit more vulnerable, on the basis of the fact that suddenly we're the uh, this great civilization fell by this, 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 this minuscule RNA-based virus. Um, we've also been through a working experiment in homeworking that has effectively knocked out some of the shibboleths about work and how we organize our working lives that, you know, a few years ago when I was, I was, you know, for my sins, I spent seven years as a director of the diamond mining giant did. And, you know, when I, even as a director, wanted to work at home, you know, the idea was absolutely scoffed at. It was viewed as, you know, it would leave my team dispirited. It would lead to great unproductivity. And we've broken through that shibboleth now. We've now worked out that whatever work is going to be after we get back, and hopefully a vaccine will last, it's going to be something a lot more flexible, where hopefully we maximize the office time and we maximize the home time and maximize uh, productivity out of that. Um, so in terms of advices to what to do, I mean, I think we've got fundamentally bigger things than we can do just in terms of how we organize our workplace. And I think that's to do with really what our goals are and what our concerns are about the planet and so on. And we're able to model our future far more accurately than anybody has been able to in the past. And, uh, you know, in order to be able to make use of that modeling, you know, 150 years ago, we had to guess. A thousand years ago, we used soothsayers. Now we can model so we understand the implications of our actions. And I think that involves engaging with bigger political decisions and bigger economic decisions in terms of how we actually organize our lives 
really in respect of the potential future risks that we might invoke. Mm. Here's a, here's a comment, really, in discussion. Work and play are perceived differently, but both involve purposeful use of energy. Please discuss the framing of work as a playful versus stressful activity that can be more enjoyable and rewarding. Though I, I'm going to cut in quickly. When uh, I sometimes find it annoying when I am a client and I'm with a vendor or something and they are thinking about my, my money and talking about how can we play together. <laughs> I always find that annoying. But anyway, that <laughs> it, it's not play. It's work sometimes, you know. Yeah. Well, it's uh, certainly for me, it's a very fine line. I mean, this idea of playful versus stressful activity and rewarding. I mean, uh, if you were to join my squash club, which is in Cambridge, and, you know, we play in the local league and it's full of sort of builders and bakers and, if you see the amount of stress that happens in the uh, sort of Wednesday, well, in the previous life, on Wednesday nights when we'd have county league matches, there's a huge amount of stress <laughs> involved in that purpose right. activity. And I think there is this fine balance. You know, again, this is that wonderful evolutionary thing that's made us so interesting and so wonderful in many ways is this combination of, you know, purposefulness is not easy. And I think we really have evolved. You know, we look at the selection in favor of various traits and purposefulness. The ability to persevere is one of them. You know, there's a question, why do we people do long distance running and extreme sports? Why do people set themselves hard tasks? Why do people write books for crying out loud? <laughs> you know, as my editor, says, editor said to me, she was like, God, yeah, I just think you're all idiots. You know, you're mad to waste your time writing books. You know, she was just happy to edit them. So there's this, you know, we all, I think, intuitively understand that things that come too easy don't reward us. And whether that's to do with the way our serotonin's evolved to be released in a reward mechanism as a result of evolution to make us decent hunters and survivors, I don't know. But that is a clear fact of life that we require that kind of fulfillment and that engagement. And that engagement gives you um, a really profound sense of being and belonging. And, you know, we, we, we see this happening everywhere. This is why, again, you know, when you have functional prison programs, actually when people are given meaningful work, they thrive. Mm -hmm. James, you mentioned writing a book. Um, begs the question, what kind of worker are you? Uh, are you, uh, you procrastinate? You get everything done on time? You know, what? Uh. <laughs> um, yeah, the good question. There, actually, it depends on the kind of work that I'm doing. Um, I have, I have to say, sort of, the idea of you know, again, when I was working in the in business, you know, for my seven years at De Beers, actually, I found it incredibly easy to do the work. My days were very full. My diary was full. My assistants and staff would pack me off to something every hour. There'd be something going on. And you'd be almost carried along with it. Um, writing a book, on the other hand, is a far lonelier journey. Um, <laughs> and that requires you to drag yourself out of bed and desperately try and find words or find something to say. And I found, I, found it, I found it quite hard. And I actually started feeling somewhat nostalgic for, for not my De Beers work, but certainly, you know, the work I enjoyed absolutely the most of all was, you know, working in a field in the Kalahari, you know, I did a program mapping Atosha National Park on foot in Namibia with, you know, elephants and lions and all the rest for five years. And that was wonderful work. That I could get out of bed and 
do all the time. And it was continuous laughter and occasional bits of fear and a lot of effort, but wonderfully rewarding. What kind of work person are you, Andrew? Um, <laughs> are you a <laughs> schizophrenic, actually, uh, when it comes to, you know, both on some things, you know, getting out ahead and then in some things, um, hopeful that by my inaction, a problem will resolve itself. So I think it just sort of depends on the task. It depends on the task at hand. I, you know, um, I, I think getting back to the question that was, or the comment that was asked that Troy asked was really, was really interesting. It, it, um, made me reflect on approaches to the workplace and foundation. And, and I, 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 I agree with James totally that some of these illusions that we have about how to approach uh, the constraints of time, what you really need an office for, um, you know, scheduling and, and, and team, team building, all of, those, all of those assumptions that you make about how to structure uh, an office and a workplace, I think, are, are currently being examined. And so, um, so I came up with this metaphor to say that, you know, right now we, we think about the workplace as like a fortress, which manages, uh, you know, uncertainty and creates a boundary between a chaotic world and order on the inside. And I think we need to move away from that metaphor towards uh, what the one I offered sort of imperfectly was that, that you know, the, the new workplace should be more like a kitchen uh, that, uh, you know, a collaborative purposeful activity um, where people, people congregate, but it's not trying to kind of manage, um, time and uh, efficiency and, uh, chaos in, in the same way. So I, I totally agree that some of these shibboleths, as you put it, will, um, will fall away. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. And it also makes me reflect on that, you know, half the irony is that the reason we're able to now experiment with new ways of organizing our working life, or at least those of us in the knowledge industries, is really digital communications, the fact that we are able to communicate with one another as we are right now. And there was a certain irony that actually the great tech giants that were the creators of this digital infrastructure that effectively created the mechanism to liberate us from the, I suppose, the tyranny of a daily commute, um, were actually one of the worst offenders when it came to understanding its potential implications and went through this whole process of creating these massive campuses where effectively they'd hope that employees would surrender all their life to being on campus and doing their work. So you had your sleep pods, your recreation spaces, and so on. And so it's one of the great ironies of the last 20 years is, you know, I suspect some of these vast, expensive campuses are going to, be sort of slightly, you know, slightly like the well, malls are right now, you know, these kind of derelict pre-digital spaces that don't really... I mean, they, all, they already are, I think, for sure, oh, in Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah, they already are, you know. I'm not allowed to travel, so I can't go and see them. <laughs> yeah, the laundromats, the gym, you can, you know, on the Google campus, and I'm sure on Apple, you can, your whole life is there, right? But yeah, that's... No, one, no one's there now. Yeah, that's actually it must be fun for whoever the caretaker is. I'd be quite happy to be the caretaker. They've probably got decent squash courts I could use instead of being banned like I am here. Yeah, I think they probably do. Um, things like childcare and, and looking after one's home, 
uh, you know, uh, parents are not paid for that. Does that make, do we value that work less? It's still work. Well, look, absolutely. And again, this is why I'm interested in engaging and asking these questions, shaking up this idea about work. Half of it is a question of how we apportion value. Um, and we certainly in the UK, we are having a fairly considerable debate, um, which is a one that's emerged in, as a result of the pandemic about, for example, you know, whether we pay nurses enough and whether, for example, the various um, private companies that, for example, have managed to cash in on the distribution of, you know, various PPE and care items and so on with fairly significant moments. There have been questions about what is it that we value and how effectively does our economy in this, again, hyper-abundant, hyper-capitalized world reflect the values of most people, whether that tends to be distorted by concentrations in wealth or, or not. And I think there's a real question about, you know, what is the value that we ascribe to homeworking? What is the value that we ascribe to domestic working? And certainly I've made that decision and I, because I've been able to do it, but, you know, part of the reason of me going back to work in Africa and Bush and write books is because I'm a single father. So I actually want to be able to spend that time with my kids. Now I spend too much time with them because they're not in blooming school anymore. Pandemic, you know, frankly, I wish they'd go now. (laughs) Not enough scarcity. There's scarcity at all. Open the schools at all costs, that's what I say. (laughs) But there are these balances and there's real value in it. And I certainly, you know, if I ask me, I mean, I'm certainly paid an awful lot less than I was when I worked at the beard, but is my life richer for it? I'd certainly say so. Salaries and and, and um, compensation are are determined based on the perceived the perceived scarcity of the skill. Uh, basically, the replacement <laughs> well, the, the replacement cost for that skill, as opposed to the value that that skill produces. Absolutely. Well, this is this is again my point. Is you know there was at a time during the agricultural era, which really ended with the beginnings of industry. There was actually a very clear correspondence between labor effort and reward. I mean, it really quite, and you could account for it almost in energetics terms. Ever since the economies became more capitalized, that correspondence has been somewhat out of whack. And the more capitalized your economy, the more automated it becomes, the more out of whack that particular relationship becomes. And we're now at a point where I think really the relationship between effort and reward is so distorted. I mean, we all know the debates about privilege in the United States at the moment, whether it's, you know, it's assumed within identity politics a great deal at the moment. But ultimately, we know that, you know, really you're you know, what is the primary determinant of individual success in the future? It's access to capital, whether that's to pay for education, to be able to make certain choices or to not be caught in certain debt traps and so on. And so we're really at a, uh, this is where I think the big challenge comes. And again, I keep going back to John Kenneth Galbraith from the Affluent Society written in the 1960s, where he was saying, you know, we have this prosperity. Our challenge is now to make the best use of it possible. And this is really where we're at now. This is certainly my, you know, if there's one thing that animates me, it's that question. So paint that paint that forward, uh, that picture a little bit more for us. It seems to me that on the one hand, you have, you know, th- there's there's a there's a kind of treadmill of progress that that we're on um, that requires uh, growth, right? It requires growth in demand. Um, 
you know, for, for perceived needs or, or real needs. Um, but it's it, like, I, I sometimes struggle to understand alternatives to, to that, but maybe, I don't know if you have some, some thoughts uh, about that. I, I, I do indeed. Well, for, you know, I mean, this is again, the idea of, this is again where the past holds us some clues. I mean, we're in very unprecedented times. There's never before been six and a half or seven billion people on the planet. There's never before been, you know, the kind of awareness of the consequences of our environmental impacts and so on. Nor indeed, you know, our ability to be able to mobilize resources at such a huge scale. But there has been in the past examples of societies which has been able to live far more sustainably than we have that have not been hostage to this growth agenda. And the perfect example is actually for most of human history. And we now know through genomics um, and a series of new archaeological finds that Homo sapiens have been around an awful lot longer than anybody even thought 10 years ago. Um, you know, the latest set of data suggests that really Homo sapiens emerged in Africa probably around 320,000 years ago. Um, and that for the first 310,000 years of Homo sapiens' presence on this planet, they were hunter-gatherers. And if they behaved anything like the hunter-gatherers who endured to the 20th century, it means they were not obsessed with scarcity. They were convinced in the providence of the environment. They did not have this idea, which is at the fundament, the scarcity of e at the fundamental idea in scarcity economics, that we are creatures with unlimited wants and limited means. Um, hunter-gatherers typically engage with the world around them, and that's why they're happy to stop working after a couple of hours a day and spend time doing things, their purposefulness and things that gave them pleasure, was they had few wants that were easily met. So rather than infinite needs um, and limited means, few wants easily met. And that was the fundamental thing. And I think what we can do is learn a great deal about how to manage abundance from them. We went through this period of agriculture where scarcity was real and visceral. It came with this huge amount of associated risks. We're now at a point where, for example, all our material needs, you know, if you think 200 years ago in Western Europe, let's say as the sort of fulcrum of scientific advancement, 80% of people still had to work the land in order to feed everybody. And most of that work went into providing the food necessary. Now, 1.3% of um, people in America work anything to do in food production. And we now consider having, um, we now consider eating too much to be a far greater risk to our health than having too little. And we live in this era of astonishing abundance. We have to learn to make use of it. Um, and we have to learn to make use of it without, in effect, destroying what we have. And so that is really where I say it's about loosening the shackles of scarcity economics. I mean, I'm an anthropologist and the value of going and living with people who are very different is they allow you to reflect on your own life through very different eyes. And from a Zunga point of view, you know, we think that it's natural to be continuously striving for more. The Zunghasi just didn't. They found it bewildering. They thought this made absolutely no sense. And so, you know, it's this sort of the wonderful journey of anthropology is it makes the strange familiar and the familiar strange. And that's really where I came at it. And I went straight from living with the Bushman into my job at De Beers at high-end capital value selling diamonds, basically, and pulling them out the ground. And this book <laughs> is the progeny of that contrast. It's sort of like a sort of one-night, you know, if my life was a one-night stand, it's, uh, you know, that's, uh, it's, it's uh, mother, the mother was my time with the hunter-gatherers and the father was my time, you know, in the heart of real luxury capitalism. Um, and the baby is this book. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, I think this is a great way to uh, wrap up this conversation. Could you hold up your book again? Because as you noted, I have the British version of it. And it's now available. It came out last week, I think, in the U.S., didn't it? Uh, Yeah, yeah, there you go. Perfect. Yes, yes, it did. And we should be getting some reviews in the normal places in the next couple of weeks. Um, We mistimed it with the inauguration the launch but uh well you know <laughs> we've had so there's some in new york and the atlantic have run theirs but i'm waiting for the other ones still i'm sure there'll be many more it's such a hot topic particularly after the the last 11 or 12 months i mean it's always a hot topic but we're all looking at work uh quite differently i think and looking to change our lives moving forward so thank you so much james for joining us from cambridge Thank you. Andrew. Thank you very much. Thank for you. Me. Thank you. Yep. Take yeah. care. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Post Hoc Digital Salon with Susan McTavish Best. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a great review. It really does make a difference. If you don't already, please make sure to follow us on social media. That's at McTavish Best on both Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for attending our digital salon.